You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's alright, alright, yeah, yeah, Hello everyone, Danny Anderson here. Thanks again for listening to the show. Uh, don't forget that bit about iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Before we get uh, started on part two of my conversation about Christian nationalism's so-called Seven Mountains with Jay Eldred. I want to encourage you to listen to part one first if you haven't. That'll give you a lot of context. Also, I'd like to say that upon reflection, I feel that our conversation somewhat transcended the specific topic of dominionism. And instead, it seems to me that what Jay and I are concerned about, at least implicitly, is a larger critique of Christian institutions and their engagement with various expressions of power. Um, next, don't forget about the upcoming Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina. Check out our webpage for more info about that. There is, remember, a 25% discount waiting for you if you use the promo code GOOSECAST2016 at checkout. Also, recently I noticed that the show's Facebook page was just about at 100 folks, so I tweeted out a promise to give a shout-out to our 100th liker. Uh, it was a bit of a photo finish, so let me thank uh, three folks just to be safe. Uh, thanks to Jeremy Marshall, Kyber Mohammadi, and Micah slash Emily Redding. Uh, now, Micah Redding hosts his own really interesting podcast called the Christian Transhumanist Podcast. Uh, in so many ways, that show works from a diametrically opposite set of assumptions from this one, but I've really been finding it thought-provoking. I just listened to an interview Micah did with Kevin Kelly about AI and the, quote, inevitable. Uh, it really had my brain spinning, both in anger and admiration, uh, and I'd love to have Micah on the show sometime so I can grill him about technology and such. Uh, thanks to all the Facebook followers. Maybe I'll continue this tradition and publicly thank new followers each show for a while. Uh, but I really hear that the iTunes rating thing is what matters and other people finding the show. So go ahead and make sure you, you don't neglect that. Finally, uh, the, on the show's blog over there at www.sectarianreviewpodcast.weebly.com, we had some responses about something Jay said about amillennialism. Here's a response from him. Greetings, Christian humanists and sectarian review listeners. Jay here again. Since our last episode, several listeners pointed out that the theology I was describing was not, in fact, amillennial theology, but was postmillennial theology. Thank you, those of you who wrote in. We asked for clarification, and you delivered. And now, on with the show. Thanks, Jay, and no worries. I'd never even heard that term before that, uh, so you're way smarter than me. Now, the final part of our discussion on Seven Mountain Dominionism.
Well, welcome back to episode two of our uh, two-part, at least two-part uh, series on Seven Mountain Dominionism. Uh, if you listen, if you haven't listened to the first episode yet, I urge you to pause right now and go back and listen to that. You'll get all the context for the things that we're about to talk about, and you will also get the first mountain, uh, which we left off with. We finished talking about business uh, in the last episode as one of the seven mountains that Christians uh, need, quote-unquote, to uh, climb in in, uh, secular culture. Uh, And this episode, we're going to pick up with the rest of these mountains and and try to talk about how they actually um, manifest, how this belief system uh, manifests in actual church practice. Uh, if you uh, remember from the last episode, I mentioned the, an article by Joe Carter on First Things in which he sort of denies the existence of this thing as some sort of um, conspiracy theory. To a degree, I think he's right. I think you'll find very few people who are not anything but fringe that actually would self-identify as this. What I'm interested in, what Jay's interested here, uh, is how these things sort of un uh, insidiously, unknowingly fi- work their way into uh, contemporary church practice. And so uh, that's the, the stance that we're taking. We covered business uh, as on the last one uh, at, at the end of the last episode. And Jay, welcome back. Um, how, how was the, the last five minutes of your life? Oh, it was so uneventful. Since we last talked. I, th- I, th- I think my cat just shifted position on my lap, and that's about it. <laughs> that's pretty good. All right. Uh, I have no idea where my cat is right now. So, um, Well, Jay, last, like I said, we, we just finished talking about business at the end of the last episode, and there are six other mountains I want to talk about here. And uh, what's the next one you would like to talk about? Well, let's move on to government. Okay. Um, you know, that's sort of in the news. That was what? <laughs> yeah, that was understatement. Anyway, um, common goals. There are actually quite a few common goals that most of these uh, different organizations and movements want, um, and in no particular order, they want to elect Christian leaders. Now, again, depending on the organization, the denomination, you know, they would have to be the right Christian leaders with the right Christian conservative values. And by right, I don't mean right-leaning, I mean right for their particular belief system, Mm. Um, which is extremely interesting in this election cycle considering the rise of Donald Trump. Yes, and his contentious relationship with um, a formerly pretty homogenous voting block of evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. That, that and, homo- homogeneity has been kind of demolished here. And his, shall we say, lack of religion or spirituality, Street or cred. at least lack of evidence, <laughs> yes. which, which is very interesting as well. As I was researching for this episode, I found an article. Let's see where it is. I'm trying to find... Lance Wallnau, who he's actually a proponent of Seven Mountain Dominionism, so we can add him to our confirmed list <laughs> for this for this episode. Well, he believe that he, that reference that Jay just made uh, is important to dwell on. There are not many people who would actually use this term. Uh, uh, David Barton is one of them we've talked about, and uh, and Jay has just, uh, just uh, uncovered another uh, person who would actually use this term. Uh, in, in about its, himself. About himself, in, in the literal sense. Go ahead, Jay. 
Um, he has said in relation to Mr. Trump that, and I'm quoting now, Donald Trump is more prophetic than people think. There is a Cyrus anointing on this man. He is like a reformer in secular garb. <laughs> and then at a different part, he posted, let's see, that was in a speech. And then later on his Facebook page, he posted that a group of people are praying for and encouraging Mr. Donald Trump because God has given this man an anointing for the mantle of government in the United States, and he will prosper. Okay. So, yes. So he is inverted the the old cliche he is actually a sheep in wolf's clothing um and this is why we should trust him um I, i'm just wondering that that whole about the whole um cyrus anointing kind <laughs> of thing it's like who is he going to release from captivity yeah. um the oppressed white guy in america i don't know <laughs> like <laughs> this is a this is a good question i don't know um is, okay is he going to unite the medes and persians i don't know <laughs> Anyway. Very interesting. Well, it's good to know that there's another person out there. And and this is, I mean, Trump, I mean, is a, in evangelical circles, his support does seem to be rather fringe um, uh, for the most part. I mean, there are sort of mainstream evangelicals. I know many um, who have signed on and, and um, decided they can support his um, candidacy. But I was going to say for the most part, those that I know, I think I might only know one person who supported Trump from the beginning, but most of the people that I know who say they are going to vote for him in November are doing so holding their noses. Uh, yes. Um, and that is sort of the, the majority, but there is this kind of, uh, maybe this is a, a future episode. We can talk about the alt right. Um, there's this, uh, mm -hmm. um, fringe uh, groups on the right, um, who often deal in conspiratorial thinking and that sort of thing. If you, um, if yeah. you want to waste a few hours of your time, you can search for the hashtag alt-right on Twitter and take a look. Yeah, and, and it will be enlightening, um, if you, or the opposite of that, maybe. <laughs> um, so, um, you, you, you might be enlightened, the people that you're reading about, not so much. Right. Uh, but much of his kind of hardcore support um, is from that kind of realm of Christianity, which um, I would suggest many most Orthodox believers would not even count as legitimate Christianity. Um, right. And, and in fact, someone did a, a study a few months ago that the more a person attends church regularly, the less they were likely to support Trump. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's this or, or at least support him in the way that, you know, you're totally on board with him. We're not talking about, okay, I'm going to vote for him because I consider the other two or the other people running to be whatever we're talking about supporting him as an, I believe in his message. I think what he's doing is exactly what we need. That kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, that is a, uh, a much more for the nominal Christian, right. Right. Um, with exceptions. And, and I do have very good friends who have told me that they have no problem with him and they think it's overblown and, and I will still respect them for that, for that opinion. So um, um, moving, and, moving away from Trump specifically in terms of the leaders, yeah. there were a few specific things that they would look for in a leader. They want moral leaders who act as humble stewards. Mm -hmm. Again, you have that um, repetition of morality and humility and service in a movement that seeks power. Yeah. So there's a disconnect there. Someone who will listen to God and not man. But again, I would argue that not all, but many of them would say, you know, unless they believe our specific things, that our specific movement or denomination 
wants, then they're not listening to God. Mm-hmm. And then finally promote family values, which will get to those values on the family mountain. Yeah. Um, can I like intervene right real quick? Sure. It, I find an interesting paradox in these goals um, because there's a, a, a seeking out of power that's implicit in this whole movement. In this whole worldview, let's call it, um, and moral leaders who lack this, who act as humble stewards um, and listen to God and not man, both of those seem to indicate seeking institutional power that you reject. Um, you know what I'm saying? You reject. It, it's almost the- like they want some form of. Now, this is going to be a history analogy people might not get it so i might have to explain it but it's almost like they want an oliver cromwell Mm. who for in english history just very briefly he won the english civil war he established what we know as the protector in england essentially he was a military dictator um he was very religious he instituted some form of not necessarily a theocracy, but his government was very, very much religious-based. But in terms of military dictators, or as far as military dictators go, in the grand scheme of things, he did not use those dictatorial powers often, mm-hmm. or to the extent that others in history have. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and so uh, the, that's the paradox. They're seeking out institutional power in institutions that they – want to undermine. And so the active uh, moral leaders who act as humble stewards, they don't want to actually employ the, 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 the institutional power they're seeking. Uh, listen to God, not man, man being the institutions of government, right? Right. <laughs> and, and, and society. And so, yeah, there seems to be a really strange paradox there. Essentially, I'm, they want Russell Crowe at the end of Gladiator. They want somebody who's going to um, free all the slaves and then die. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, oops, spoiler alert if you haven't seen that. Um, I've only seen the ending. I haven't actually seen the whole movie. So, um, it, It's not historically accurate, but it's a fun movie. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so there is this sort of, uh, again, uh, we talked in the last um, episode in terms of business and Dave Ramsey and even Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, this kind of cult of Christian celebrity. They want a sort of um, figurehead to kind of um, – idolize uh, uh, to a degree, uh, idolize their own kinds of ideologies of, of good government in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And can I, um, I, I try not to be overtly offensive on this show um, towards anybody's personal beliefs. Um, at some points, it's going to be impossible. I find, and if, if you disagree with me here, Jay, um, this is that's totally okay to disagree okay. with me. Um, but, we could get into a good conversation yes. if I disagree. I find the the Christian support of Ben Carson as a presidential candidate to be um, puzzling, uh, to say the least. Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, like to me, but he embodies this this sort of. You know, I have no reason to question he's not a moral man, um, and he's, no. you know, I have no question, I have no reason to doubt his sincerity or anything right. like that, but he is totally unfit for public office um, in, by in any some kind ways, of metric. And I, in some ways, and I can't believe I'm even saying this, in some ways he was even less unqualified, if that's the right way to say it, or more unqualified than Trump is. I agree with this. In some ways. Yes. And, it, I, know, and I know several people who decided that they would join the Trump side of things or support Trump side of things just because Carson endorsed him. Yes. 
Yeah, and I find that to be um, a really kind of puzzling thing. But to me, even almost more than Trump, he seems to be the kind of person that this worldview would gravitate towards. Um, he has his he's made his bones within this kind of Christian media sphere. Um, mm-hmm. and he's, um, well known as a celebrity Christian, um, who's succeeded in a kind of business in this case, medicine. Right. And he has this kind of hero story that we can all look up to then. And, and so, I mean, there's, there's an authoritarianism to this, um, which I guess given the name dominion <laughs> doesn't necessarily shouldn't shock me, but, uh, there's an authoritarianism built into this, uh, this worldview, I think. Um, and, and even humble Ben Carson, uh, is sort of a part of that. Um, but, uh, go right ahead. Uh, continue on with your, uh, explanation of government. Okay. Once their leader is in power, two things that they want to accomplish would be to break down the wall of separation which uh, the separation of church and state yeah okay which you know we can debate does it exist should it exist what does it mean what does it mean yeah you know i i would imagine that there are many different interpretations of that essentially they want from what i understand they would want government then to influence everything government can influence from a christian perspective okay or without or without regard to First Amendment. I almost want to say First Amendment rights. You know, it's this idea that the Constitution only applies to Christian denominations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The same people who are sort of, um, well, I mean, let me back up one second. The division between church and state, my understanding of this worldview is that it's sort of like a, uh, it only exists one way. Like government should not control religion, um, but religion should control government. Um, and. And I am perfectly fine with that definition as long as we're saying that the people in government are guided by their religions. Yes. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I don't see that they that anyone should have to check their their religion at the door. Right. And, and in some way, I I think it's impossible because one's religion is one of the most personal personal things about a person. Right. It's going to influence well almost everything about them. Right. Anyway. Yeah. And and. But I find it interesting. Well, I guess it's not, maybe it's not interesting, but um, I find it notable that uh, the same people that make those kinds of arguments are there's a, a, a Venn diagram overlap, if you will, with uh, those same people who are freaking out about Sharia law in America, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so uh, they just happen to be the beneficiary of their of their view of how government should be separate from uh, uh, religion. But yes, okay, keep and- going. Well, I, I was just going to go off just a little bit on that. I've had some conversations with people on this idea that the Constitution or our whatever should only should only reflect Christian values, and I'm like, well, why? You know, why why shouldn't it affect other denominations? You know, like or re- even religions like Islam. And I had a few people tell me, well, the founders didn't know about Islam. It's like, <laughs> yes, they did. We were kind of fighting them in the Mediterranean. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and and so in my opinion, it's like they they knew about Islam, yes, and they didn't say we're only protecting the Christian religion. They just said there's freedom of religion. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's kind of hilarious to think that people of the Enlightenment didn't know anything about Islam, right? Um, it's so much of, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's kind of that's I've never heard that argument. That's pretty funny though. Um, continue though, uh, government. 
OK. Sorry, I've clicked off my page. And then finally, they want to return America to some previous ideal. Mm. And again, that's a very general term. You know, do the, and I think we've talked about this before at some point. With this pr- previous ideal, what is this ideal? When did it happen? What are they thinking was so great in the past that we want to return to? Mm-hmm. Make America great again, right? This right. Is, the vagueness of that statement is uh, is endemic here, yes. Um, and it's also it's interesting to me that people get very upset when you deny the greatness of America's or it was almost like America was Eden at some point in the, mm-hmm. in the 18th century. And then the fall happened at, when we, I don't know, invented the and income tax I think or something. But. We'll get to this at some point as well, but I just want to say it while I'm thinking of it or I'm liable to forget. But we've talked before in the Barton episode, and it'll come up in one of the other mountains about American exceptionalism. And I think that if America was exceptional, it's that America was exceptional in its toleration of Christianity. Not necessarily that it was founded as a Christian, but the fact that it tolerated some form of Christianity for as long as it has. That wasn't um, state-sponsored. Well, it wasn't state-sponsored after the Constitution. Right. Well, right. exactly right. I mean, there which, which that's an, which, which that's another fallacy is that people, and I think I've talked about this before at some point. You know, the most of the colonies had a state religion, mm. or at least had a list of religions you were allowed to belong to. Well, oh, that's interesting. I've always been under the impression that Pennsylvania was pretty open in that regard. Um, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Maryland were the most open. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was sort of in some previous research I did about the Scotch Irish. I think this came up, and so, um, um, so, okay. Um, anyway, that was a fun aside. <laughs> and you have uh, it's impossible, I guess. To I mean, David the the David Barton episode inspired this episode, so it's impossible simply because neither of us knew much about it. <laughs> yes, and so it's impossible to not keep going back to him. Um, and and David Barton's worldview is a good example of this mountain of government. Well, the good news is, though, is that it's not just a rehash of the Barton episode, because since we recorded that new information has come out where he's done a few things to talk about since then. So if you want to know more about Barton and his views on government, you can go back in the archives and listen to that. But since we recorded that episode, he actually founded the David Barton School of Political Science. (laughs) With the goal of training its attendees to conquer the mountain of government. Okay. Um, is this associated with a, an existing institution or is this his own um, – is this like Financial Peace University basically? No, it is his – well, I'm actually going to look that right now because the article I had pulled up about it didn't say it. But it's not like Financial Peace University – from what I read, it is not about um, – it's not like Financial Peace University, you know, where you get the videos, or whatever. I believe it's actually a brick and mortar, a brick and mortar thing. Yeah, Ecclesia College. Okay. Which I'm not sure where that is, but if I had to guess, knowing Barton, it's either in Texas or California. Okay, that's interesting. Um, nope, and I was wrong. It's in Arkansas. Well, it's close enough to Texas. Sorry to all our Arkansas and Texas listeners. Um, <laughs> I've conflated your states. That was terrible of me. I'm sorry. In Arkansas. Okay. I will uh, look this up and put it in the show notes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, beyond what I just said, it's not, 
you know, there's not much. Um, basically, they're offering a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, which, again, that will be the David Barton brand of political science. Um, their first classes begin in fall of 2016, mm-hmm. and um, they've actually expanded since I last read. When I first read it, um, it was going to be campus only, and now they have expanded that to take an online course Interesting. as well. Um, what are they promising? Let's see. They're promising to prepare students for employment and politics, public administration, and public policy. They promise to build a foundation of knowledge in American politics while also integrating Christian faith into a practicing profession. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's, I mean, interesting about that to me. Which, which ends with a capstone of an internship in state or local government. Oh, interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, holy cow. Um, <laughs> this is, this show depresses me sometimes, Jay. I have to, I have to confess. Um, it, what is interesting to, I keep coming back to this cult of celebrity. The fact that it's called the David Barton School of Political Science means that an existing Christian institution is, um, I don't want to say cashing in, but leveraging um, mm-hmm. a well-known entity within Christian well, circles. I wouldn't even say that the college is leveraging it. I believe that Hugh has been working to set this up mm. for some time. Um, yep, because he is on the college's board of regents. Oh, I see. So that would make sense. Okay. Um, well, some research for all our listeners out there. Um, yes. Well, what I think of as well, it's, it's also marketing because by calling it the David Barton School of Political Science, you know what brand you're getting. A brand. That's a great way to think about it. Um, there's, a, there's a branding that goes along with this. Um, I like that. Um, and you say uh, the Christ- historians who criticize his work have a, an agenda. Yeah, um, let's see if I can find – and I might send you all of these links. You can put them in the show notes if you want so people can see I'm not – That would be great. Just, yeah. just you know, bashing on Barton. And actually, I do have a few good things to say about him, but I'll wait until an appropriate time to say those good things. <laughs> um, but let's see. This may never happen. No, it will. <laughs> I'm just if we ever get to that episode on memorials. <laughs> okay. I do have some good things to say about Barton and memorials. But yes, he did give an interview for the a program called or a radio program called The Patriot and the Preacher in which he essentially said that historians who criticize him do so because they hate America, want to tear it down and are intent on building some form of transnational identity. <laughs> okay. And yeah. Well, that's right out of our conspiracy episode. Um, any, and I think this will come up again uh, in the media um, section. This might be a good transition into that, actually. Uh, okay. In, in the in the conspiracy episode, we talked about it's difficult to debunk um, successfully debunk conspiracies for the conspiracy theorist because they uh, receive all new inf- all conflicting information as proof that they're part of the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that and they're, and they're that's one it. thing actually that I found across all seven mountains is that the different articles that I saw posted, if anything was negative, it must have been an attack on them because they were promoting Christian values. Yes. 
Yeah, that that is um, um, well, and that that's, speaks back in the last episode. I talked about the settledness that this implies, the the kind of sureness about um, the life of of life of faith that this implies, uh, and that sureness. I mean, if you're that sure about something, then if you're attacked, the only recourse you have <laughs> is to associate your attacker with part of a conspiracy, um, and not necessarily someone who's trying to give you good instruction. Um, but this is actually, I think, also um, a good segue into the next mountain that we're talking about, our third, uh, the media. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you have to say about that? Okay. Again, we're discussing the common goals. I found, you know, with varying degree, different ideas for the media across different denominations, different movements, different organizations. But um, essentially, they want to eliminate political correctness. Mm. You know, they want to be frank, which I think is just their code for I want to be able to talk about what I want to talk about when I want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't actually political correctness. They want to eliminate objectionable materials, you know, make things more family friendly or return to family friendly programming. Um, Promote fairness in the media and integrity, which, again, they're using words without defining what they mean by fairness or integrity. Mm-hmm. Would fairness be, you know, we devoted five minutes to this side, now we're going to devote five minutes to another side. I know for a time the um, FCC mandated that, and it caused massive problems. Yeah. I remember that, actually, uh, I used to work at a TV station. I used to work at the PBS station in Cleveland years ago, and during the 2000 election, um, Ralph Nader's campaign was actually complaining that he wasn't being fairly represented on on PBS stations, and so we had to play one of his commercials, uh, or one of his ads, basically, (laughs) during a break, and the ad had to be... Um, prefaced by this disclaimer that <laughs> this is not an ad. This is to ensure fairness. It was actually kind of comical and, wow. and postmodern. But um, uh, but go ahead, go right ahead. The fairness um, in that, media. That's okay. Um, that was all that I really had about that. Um, I, I would also want to point out that with their elimination of uh, objectionable materials, what's objectionable would differ from person to person. Yes, but, you know they would be promoting things. Like we talked about, I think, well, actually, that's more for media, so I'll hang on to that. We can come, or I mean, for entertainment, so we'll come back to that. But they, they would be, you know, for limiting access to, uh, I don't know, I guess the go-to bogeyman would be pornography or something like that, you know. Right. How, how that's displayed or access to it, things like that. I know um, one particular denomination, in some ways I'm glad I didn't remember what it was, but they wanted some... <laughs> international organization to monitor the internet for objectionable materials oh wow That's yeah like, um, good luck with that the internet is objectionable materials i think so yes um <laughs> geez um you know, that's actually uh, – I'm remembering so many conversations I've had in my life now uh, about this. And so a lot of these sort of family-friendly – there are channels on your cable box mm-hmm. that, are, that pitch themselves in this way. And they'll show like reruns of 
Little House on the Prairie and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, um, and and the Andy Griffith show. And, yeah, these sort Leave of Leave It to Beaver. Exactly these these very kind of. I mean, not that I don't love the Andy Griffith show more than most people. Here. No, um, but uh, but there are there is something that's so like wholesome and and utterly unoffensive about those shows um, that they find as a good in and of itself, right? To be offended, mm-hmm. um, to find something offensive is a bad, right? Um, and right. and I think also that works towards this I, this ideology. Of, of settledness, right? To be right. offended is to become unsettled in, in what you think. Uh, and, and so if you have a television show where a heroic kind of character has socialistic tendencies or something, I, I, would, ass- I would assume that these people would find that offensive, right? Mm-hmm. Even though there's no sort of sex or violence associated with that. Um, and so, um, yeah. And, and then um, I'm also remembering a couple years ago when – Oh, the Duck Dynasty, the guy. I've never seen that show. Um, I've seen it a few times. <laughs> but the Duck Dynasty guy got in all that trouble for talking about vaginas and stuff. Right. right? And so um, and, and so, um, Christians were really upset because they saw this as kind of a liberal media attack on a wholesome family value show because there's mm-hmm. no objectionable material. I have no idea whether that show is objectionable th- or not. And I think we've discussed the possibility of doing – an episode on objectionable materials or censorship, things like that. Yeah. But whenever someone wants to say, oh, you know, it has objectionable materials, I, w- I want to say, have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> How do you read? How do you read the Bible um, in, in general without with no ability to be unsettled by things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then when I think there's the problem, not with me, but with these movements, is that if you're if one is unsettled, they're no longer certain, and the whole movement is based on certainty. Uh huh. Um, absolutely. Otherwise, you couldn't pursue the power with the passion that they do. Um, and I totally agree with that. You have Fox News uh, well, written down here. They made a distinction between the media and arts and entertainment, which really the two could go together. Yeah. And so I tried to limit on the media side of things to – it basically boiled down to news sources would be the um, would be the – idea they're promoting, mm-hmm. I guess, in this, on this side of things. And Fox News by far topped the list Yeah, for, you know, the sources of the articles that they were promoting or the pictures they were promoting or the people that, were, that they were promoting. Fox News plays a major part in this idea. And again, that's not to say that Fox News is out there wanting to conquer the media for Christianity. I know that there are some who've actually said that, but again, it's just, you know, it's the Christian's go-to news source, I guess. Anyway. People of the Christian right, at least. Right? right. Yeah. Yes, the Christian right. I should clarify that. Yeah. Um, you know, my parents, I finally got my mom where she won't play Fox News in the room anymore. I know that. It always starts know, I, a fight, you know. It's I like, work hard for that, but I've had people tell me, it's like, well, it must be true because I saw it on Fox News. It's like, that's not the way this works. <laughs> exactly, right? But, um, yeah. But if they're promoting Fox News, then they're also – there's a general distrust of liberal sources on principle. Yeah. It's like if it's from MSNBC or if it's from CNN or if it's from NPR, I can't trust it. Yeah, because there's some liberal agenda. Oh, which... especially, especially NPR because it's, you know, it's government-funded. Right. Yeah, and you know, honestly, having worked in public television, um, we were connected. We were – combined with the public radio station Mm -hmm. during my time there. Um, If they knew, I mean, there is not a liberal agenda to PBS. (laughs) Let me just tell you that. I know growing up, like NPR was evil because 
oh oh my word they they um put out news stories in favor of bill clinton you know yeah yeah exactly as as i've grown i have actually found them to be a fairly in terms of american news sources a fairly balanced news source believe it or not in my in my opinion i i mean i don't watch it regularly anymore the news hour but um i don't i don't watch pbs but i listen to i listen to like morning edition and all things considered and things of that nature so like their actual news their news programming is fairly balanced. They're not that's confrontational. Some of the talk, some of the talk shows can be one sided, but that's the point of a talk show, right? And, and they're, I was, I mean, people like Gwen Eiffel, I know, I thought were always more than generous with people from mm-hmm. the people they were interviewing from all sides of a political issue, um, and there was not some sort of shaming goal, um, from what I can remember. But you have to have that kind of idea that perception of uh, standard media, let's call it, um, that it is inherently flawed with these sort of liberal ideas Mm -hmm. and therefore necessitates a place like Fox News, which therefore anything they say is actually justified because it's fighting against this inherently flawed um, liberal media sphere, right? Exactly. I mean, the the phrase don't believe everything you read really means everything regardless of the source. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and uh, you mentioned political correctness. And as you're talking, mm-hmm. I really think that that would be a, a, an episode I would like to do at some point down the road. Um, that's uh, because it's so ill-defined. And it people, really is. <laughs> people use it to mean – it's just a buzzword that people it, it, use. It's a buzzword to mean I want to say what I want to say without repercussion. Exactly. I don't. And, and if – and if it's limited, well, it must be because of political correctness. The, this is the Duck Dynasty controversy um, recently or a couple of years ago, right? Um, that people were fighting against him because we're just too political correct and we can't hear, we can't understand. Now, certainly there are cases where there's thought policing going on, right? Um, and mm-hmm. and you may be able to associate that with some broader goal of political correctness. But the way that it gets used as this sort of bogeyman is just um, – Part of this um, exigence. I mean, it's it's creating the necessity for this Christian takeover of of, of institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, this is. I I honestly, it, it, I don't know if there's something just magical about the number seven, and that's why they this is referred to in that way. But to separate media from arts and entertainment is a little tricky. They have done so. Let's address arts and entertainment immediately on the heels of media because I, okay. think, that, I think that separation's a little... I, I have a hard time thinking of Fox News, for example, as something other than entertainment. And, <laughs> and so, um, and so let's, let's, let's address them together. Yeah, you're totally right that, you know, personally, I wouldn't separate the media from arts and entertainment, especially since their goals are essentially the same for both. Really, the only thing that is different about them would be the um, the characters that they're promoting or the people they're promoting. Yeah, and honestly, I I feel like if you've listened to this show, um, you've probably already heard this <laughs> as, as a lament of the show the the pure flicks style of of Christian film the 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 in the we did an episode called Against Praise Movies right and and, mm-hmm. and I think that we, um, this is something that we've repeatedly returned to on this show. But you also bring in things like sports. Mm-hmm. Again, this was from looking at the different Facebook feeds or the different 
sources that these different movements or organizations were promoting. But I saw quite a few articles related to people like Tim Tebow. I guess he plays football. Um, well, he used or to. Or he did. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he does anymore. Fo- I'm sorry. I don't follow football. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't follow much sports at all anymore myself. Anyway. So, yeah. You know, but I guess he got into some form, not necessarily trouble, but he took flack over praying yes. on the field, I guess. Yes. Okay. Um, and go well, ahead. Let me say, this is, I mean, Tebow is one of those kind of famous, he's a very um, outspoken Christian athlete. And again, you know, where, you know where I'm going here. There's sort of mm-hmm. a Christian cult of celebrity here. Uh, and, and he, in his realm, in his field of, of sports is sort of like an ideal that we like to hold um, young people up to when he is criticized. People see that as a criticism of him because of his Christianity. Right. Right. Um, and I, you, you know, it's like the, the coach sat him on the side. It must be because he's a Christian. Yes. Like, no. <laughs> yes. And, and yeah, and no one will sign him to a contract, not because he's not good at his position, um, but because he's a Christian, right? And that, that right. reveals some anti-Christian bias within the, the, the film of, of uh, or the field of, uh, of sports. Um, so, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I would actually agree there's an anti-Christian bias in sports. I think it comes in the, the examples of public funding of football stadiums. Um, well, I, I would agree <laughs> that there is an anti-Christian bias as well. Um, I know a, well, he used to, I know someone who used to play professional baseball and it was the same way. But as he said, what do you expect? Yeah. You know, you know it going into it. You shouldn't think, oh, they're persecuting me specifically. It's right. just, it's just what it is. And again, we come back to this idea, should Christians dominate? Right. Or should we expect persecution the way that I read the Bible is expect persecution? Right. And there's a long tradition of, of, say, Jewish baseball players who refuse to play even in playoff games on on like Yom Kippur. Uh, And and they often don't get treated nicely. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so is that a anti-Christian? They they go into it knowing how they're going to be treated and do it anyway. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, And so – and honestly, this is another – this is very unclear to me. Uh, there's such a, a powerful Christian presence in sports. I mean, every game, there's masses of players who pray together um, mm-hmm. across team lines. Um, Fellowship of Christian Athletes is a gigantic um, organization, frankly. It, it's an institution in and of itself. I, I frankly have trouble buying that sports is anti-Christian. Like, I, I feel like Christianity... If, if, if anything else, I think Christian or sports are as poisonous to the Christian imagination itself. But um, I think if anything, Christians should vacate sports. <laughs> uh, but that's just my own personal like professional sports or just all sports. Uh, I'm a bit of a radical on this case, uh, so I, I, my my opinion is my own. I think that uh, sports is is a major idol uh, for for Christians, and and we try to attach. Um, these kind of divine values to things that are not divine, and, and and we create little celebrities out of out of our athletes, and and so I to me I, I I'm very I used to be a very big sports fan. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the um, football episode we did. Um, well, I I've, ago. I did force myself to mainly because <laughs> you know I'm I'm all for learning about things that I don't particularly know about or enjoy. Yeah, but. 
I go into yeah. I go into all the detail you need for there. Um, I, I'm very suspicious of the moral role that sports plays in our culture, and for Christians to sort of um, try to s- implement a Christian dominion in that field, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's like to me. I mean, would you? suggest we have christian gangsters like i don't know <laughs> like i mean that's a field that i think is an anathema to to christian practice and and so to try and but, christianize it is, is strange to me but i would i would almost say that those on the left looking toward the right would say that those who fall into this christian dominion category are christian gangsters <laughs> oh i think you're right about that actually yeah but yeah i mean you don't want your the christian Meyer Lansky or something, right? And right. So, um, how did this come up? All right. I have no idea. We got a little bit of a sidetrack here. Um, uh, but more about sports. You also have Steph Curry. Um, um, I only put him on again. I, I enjoy basketball, but I'm not a huge NBA fan. But I know that with the playoffs and all, I've seen many – and again, these were on the different sites I saw as well. But many people have been reposting things about Steph Curry's Christianity, and so I just put him there as an example of someone who might be lifted up. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And Christians really kind of, I mean, if, if someone is public in their faith, uh, there's another, there's another football player that plays for the Seahawks. Um, Russell Wilson, I think his name is, um, he's the quarterback and, um, I know enough to be conversational about sports just because I like to be a social person too. Um, but, uh, uh, like if someone outs themselves as a Christian and, and publicly lives this, I mean, they will have, um, a career long past their playing days uh, mm-hmm. in the Christian media sphere. Um, and so this is one reason I'm a little suspicious of it. Um, and you see it in books. I mean, I'm thinking of the whole, I mean, the, if you walk into a Christian bookstore, it's typically not theological. It's pr- typically sort of entertainment driven with Amish romances mm-hmm. and, and the, the kinds of wholesome sorts of entertainment that we're looking at in the against praise movies episode as well. Right. Right. So, right. Um, you did, um, name somebody who I have never heard of entertainers like American Pharaoh. Okay. He was a racehorse. Actually. I was going to say, it sounds like a horse to me. Yeah. It's like, I was researching this. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and so it was, and I kid you not, this, this was the headline of, of the article, American Pharaoh's triple crown, a prophetic sign. Christians will soon control the seven mountains. <laughs> Okay, I'm going And I guess their basic argument was that American Pharaoh became the first horse to win the triple crown in 37 years, a sign that we're going to, into the promised land on the tops of the seven mountains of society. Holy cow, that and is like, if I'll we'll post this link in the show notes. This will definitely be in the show it, notes. It, it gets into numerology. It talks about the number 7 and the number 37 and it's it's weird. Um, now, this has got to be. This is even more fringe than someone like David Barton, right? I mean, this this is uh, this has got to be an extreme example of this ideology. It, w- it would be, but uh, no doubt entertaining one. I am going to look at that um, with great joy. Um, <laughs> that's that's amazing. Um, <laughs> and so, all right. Um, anything else to say about entertainment or media? Um. Well, we you mentioned uh, Pure Flix. Yeah. And you know, there's that whole you know, Christian movie genre yeah. with, you know, movies like Flywheel and Facing the Giants and more recently God's Not Dead. Yes. And I believe they're doing another one of that. God's Not Dead too. It's out. I think it's out already. God's Still Not Dead. I don't know what they're going to call it. God's Not Dead too. I thought that would be a cool like buddy cop film. Like, (laughs) uh, it's all right, but go ahead. So it's, 
this idea, you know, I've only seen one of them. I've only seen Flywheel. But from what I understand, the setup is still the same. Like, it is, everyone is a trope. Yeah. Or a stereotype. And it's almost formulaic in their, in their plot. Yeah. Um, we went into great detail about this industry and in, against praise movies. Um, right. Check that so, one out if you're, if you're interested. Exactly. This is one that's already been covered. So yeah, yeah. That, and, um, it's interesting. You do bring up Carrie Underwood. Um, and I, I watched like one season of American Idol. I think it was the year Fantasia one. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, that's all I really know about that show, but I do know that she is sort of this icon because again, like the athletes, this is a sort of celebrated figure who is open mm-hmm. about their faith, which, um, which I w- which I would argue is almost easier in country music yes, because it of its roots. Yeah. But as a public figure, she is still open to attack, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is all, that is very true. Um, well, um, now, one I really, I obviously have, and we both have vested interest in this field is education, and, <laughs> yes. and so this to me is one I'd like to dwell on for a few minutes here. Okay, excuse me. In terms of education, and again, this kind of goes back to bringing to breaking down the wall of separation, but they want to, or their common goals would be to restore discipline, respect, and excellence in education, which they would do by bringing God, faith, prayer, and Bibles back into the classrooms. Um, They want biblical truth in their curriculum. Those are the common goals, I suppose. Yeah, these are the textbooks that David Barton is trying to write um, Mm -hmm. in, in Texas so that they filter through the rest of America, right? Okay. Right. Um, so we had, in the last episode, I think hinted at a question I have, like, how does just a standard Christian college not fall into this trap? Like, what is the difference between a Christian college and this kind of dominionist, um, fringe? Well, I see a difference between the two, between having a Christian school or a Christian college, because what they're talking about is not the establishment of more Christian schools or not necessarily, you know, convincing parents to homeschool necessarily. What they want is to reform the public schools in a Christian mold. Okay. So they, they want the public school system to reflect their Christian values. Um, and, and so, so I, I do see a distinction there. Okay. And, and this is, I, the, this is one of those really interesting gray areas. I feel like, um, where I would identify someone against this cultural approach generally, but I'm not necessarily against Christian colleges. I, I've obviously have experience with this. Right. And, and I feel like, um, I would, I can't rectify in my mind the difference, like how this isn't part of that. Like I I don't, uh, um, when, why does a Christian college exist if it's not because there's something wrong with secular education? And, and, and and so how do, what is the, what is the line? And certainly I would think that there are Christian colleges that do fail, uh, in, in their vision of themselves because they fall into this kind of simplistic, um, dominionist kind of modes of thinking, but certainly not all of them do. Some of them are Mm -hmm. doing good work. What -hmm. is the difference between those two things? Honestly, I am not 
I'm not sure that I'm qualified to answer that either. I mean, I have a, I ha, obvi- obviously, I'm not against Christian schools because I teach at one. Right. <laughs> but I guess where I, where I have a problem with this Dominion theology is that I see as as the establishment of Christian schools or Christian homeschooling as some some form of what has come to be called the Benedict Option. With, with withdrawing from society. Okay. Now, yes, their graduates may go out and influence society, but with few exceptions, they're not saying we must go out and conquer society for for our denomination or our movement. Right. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Do you see the distinction I'm making there, I, I guess? I, I sort of do. Um, but, but on the Christian uh, – from the Christian dominion side, which would say we must go out and put Christians in power – they essentially want to make the public school a Christian school. I see. Yes. Well, this is w- when you see um, Facebook memes about um, the Ten Commandments in schools and how, you know, look at what happened since they took prayer to schools, every bad thing that ever happened in which, American history. Which, again, that that is so simplistic. I have many friends in the in, that teach in public schools. And I'm like, you know, the idea that you can't have prayer in schools or Bible in schools is – is wrong. It's not as if they're banned. There's just limitations as to who can start it and when and where. Right. You know, it's not as if, you know, someone simply wanting to start a prayer group, for example, is going to get expelled. Right. Well, I mean, when we lived in Georgia, my daughter's school would not give homework on Wednesday because they assumed people were going to church. Now, tell me how that's not. Um, if the kind of liberal takeover of, of education was happening, that kind of mm-hmm. thing would certainly not happen, right? And, and so that, to me, is a perfect example right. of and yeah. I even I even know of in our local public school system that there are Bible studies that go on. The mm. difference is is that they had to be begun and they are led by students. Yeah. So to say that they don't exist is. I guess it's somewhat of an untruth. Yeah. Well, it is an untruth, but you know what, you know what I'm trying to get there. Yeah. I've been writing this essay on over the last few weeks and I don't have any idea what I'm going to ever do with it. I don't know why I'm writing it. Frankly, I was complaining to my wife. I don't know why I'm writing this, Um, but it's about Christian higher education. And uh, I guess, and so this is in on my mind. um, And this is maybe why this kind of paradox is, is sticking. I'm sticking at it right now. Um, But, I um, it, it seems to me that an ideal, a, a version of Christian higher education that doesn't fall into the kind of dominion domain, um, the dominion dominion, um, if uh, is one that takes a Christian humanist perspective or, or approach to education. Frankly, is mm-hmm. that to be a Christian is to explore big questions, right? Yes. It isn't necessarily just to put nominally Christian people in prominent places, right? Right. Um, and so if there's a curricular um, rigor that um, raises more questions than answers and that actually deepens the life of faith rather than just kind of transmits this settled package of, of faith beliefs uh, to, to, consume, to students who consume them uh, and then take them into the world. I, I feel like that's the distinction. Like for mm-hmm. me, like one that does A is 
on the good side of the line and one that does B is on the bad side of the line. So I, I would imagine that David Barton's school is going to be doing B. There's a set of facts that you must learn and implement into the world, right? That right. is, to me, the dominionist role, the dominionist um, approach, whereas the more kind of philosophical approach, the more kind of mon- monastic approach, if you will, um, is is not doing that. Um, and so to me, that's how... Christian education can be salvaged from this philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I appreciate about the school I teach at is that when they hired me, I made it clear that I was not going to be force feeding them one particular set of, shall we say, set of instructions or set of information with which to expand, but to teach the humanities as humanities. Yes. And make them ask the big questions, realizing that sometimes there's not a pat answer. Yes. So and and that that is anathema, I would think, to the dominionist mindset, where everything is clear and settled and, and established it, 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 in Genesis. Yep, it 1. goes back to that idea of settlement in one's thinking. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is why this is a good fit for this show. I I really appreciate this part of the conversation, especially because this was a, a real struggle I was having as we were talking how how to kind of. Um, really kind of salvage some of my own <laughs> held beliefs um, from, from this way of thinking. I think there are ways to do this kind of thing correctly. Is what mm-hmm. um, um, family. Now, family values, this is a, a buzzword in evangelical circles mm-hmm. my entire life, right? And, 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 so, go ahead. and I think because it's been a buzzword for so long, it's one of the more difficult mountains to manage because what does anyone mean by family? Yes. Like I actually could not find one common set of ideas about what family should do or be. Yeah. Um, it is like a, a an angel term to p- political correctness, devil term, right? Um, right. Yes. Um, and so what does um, family values actually look like in practice in the dominionist perspective on things? I honestly don't know. Um, <laughs> the, the, only, the only common thing that I could find in terms of articles being, being posted or what have you, and again, I think it's mainly because of the recent political climate, was this idea of anti-homosexuality, uh, whether, yeah. it, whether in regards to marriage or adoption or whatever, whatever else. You know, it's the whole... You know, as the, it, it was called back in the 90s, the gay agenda. Yeah. <laughs> well, and now it's, I mean, you live in North Carolina, right? The bathroom laws that, that oh, ha- oh my, oh are my. Such, a, such an issue. This I, seems to be like a front on which. There are times that I wonder yeah. if anyone actually even read that bill <laughs> on both sides. Okay. It, it's because both sides took it to the extreme, in my, in my opinion. Again, I'm, okay. I try to see. I try to see things from both sides whenever there's there's an issue going on. But it's like I legitimately would talk to people outside of North Carolina that thought that, you know, we were we had armed thugs going around checking people's genders at the bathroom door. Right. (laughs) And then I had people here on the opposite side that thought that the law allowed pretty much any sort of perversion to go on in the bathroom that wanted to go on. Right. And it's like, okay. I mean, personally, I didn't like the law, but I didn't like the law because from its introduction to signing into law was 12 hours. Uh, that is not enough time for any law to be passed. Yeah. Well, I, it's like you, you ha- when you have representatives telling you they had exactly five minutes to look over the bill. <laughs> 
that's not good. <laughs> it's like if it even if we were to assume that it was a perfect law, I would still be against it just for that matter because if they passed a law that I liked in 12 minutes, what would they pass that I don't like in 12 minutes? Right. Exactly. Not 12 minutes, sorry, 12 hours. Right. I you know, and so I know that you have like you're much more conservative than me, right? Uh, yes. In, in political ideology, and that, and that's that's fine. And I feel like that's a conser- that's a legitimate conservative complaint against that law. And I feel like my own personal complaint against that law is also a conservative one. Frankly, I mean, if someone does something um, illegal or does assault somebody in a bathroom, there are already laws for what, through which we can prosecute mm-hmm. them, right? And so it seems to me that a, a conservative principle principle is fewer laws is better than more laws, right? And so if we already have laws that take care of events in bathrooms, we don't need another one to complicate um, or to over-legislate our lives. And so to me, my position on that is a rather conservative one. But uh, uh, and, yeah. and it's interesting because as we're talking and our own ideas, you know, being conservative or liberal relative to each other, my idea is actually more liberal for the conservative Christians that I'm, that I'm around where I'm at. Yeah. Because most of them are like, you know, this law is 100% on board. We need to do whatever with it. Because it fits into the family value um, political agenda as it's associated with this dominionist approach to uh, cultural questions. Um, right. Which, which again, brings me to the point that I think that very few people actually read this bill. Mm-hmm. Because my understanding of it, and even my understanding, I forget the organization that put it out, but it was a, some national group. They organized a committee to read all the bathroom laws in the states, and there were about six of them. And they posted an article about it, and they said that really all that North Carolina's law did was revert power back to the states to, or back to the state to regulate local ordinances. Mm. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was about the bathrooms, but it wasn't. It was really reestablishing. The idea of, I guess, the closest word I can come up with is federalism yeah. between state governments, between the state government and local governments, which the last time North Carolina wrote a new constitu- a new state constitution was back in 1971. Yeah. So it was really, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on going on there. I won't get into all of that because a lot of it is just state specific. Yeah. But I don't want to say that, you know. I, I've made my opinion clear on it. So yeah. Whatever. I mean, I will say that the rushness of that law is due to uh, my opinion is that it's due to the fact that it was a response to an immediate cultural political mm-hmm. question, right? And, and so yes. that uh, and that response was motivated in large part because of this kind of family values ideology that is, I think, appropriately a subset of this broader cultural approach. Um, and, and so I, I do think that there was that aspect of it. Um, you in North Carolina, the state of Franklin needs to come back. Um, uh, do you remember that? The, oh yes. Um, I have a, a friend um, who has a band called the Lost State of Franklin. His last name, his name's Scott Franklin. Um, and so, um, what a great name for a band! The great band too. They're on Amazon. You should check them out. So, um, okay. So, <laughs> great little uh, Americana country band, sort of. Uh, awesome. So, okay. Um, anything else about family values? I feel like. Family values as political opinion and position, I think, is what we're talking about here. I, I think so, and almost – I think that this idea of family values goes back to almost like a 1950s idea of family values. Yes. Very – the simplicity of, of, yes. of that kind of – at least the 
the, the, the way that we nostalgically look back at the fifties as a simplistic time. Mm-hmm. That, that's what it's a, it's a nostalgic, um, political position, um, which, whether it's which factually I almost true or found not. interesting that what I didn't see as I was researching everything out, I was almost certain that when it came to family values, I was going to find something about, you know, women not being in the workforce or something like that. You know, women should be at home and homemakers. Mm-hmm. And it surprised me somewhat that I didn't find that. And I wonder if because at this point in our society, it's become accepted that women will work, Hmm. where it would almost be, you know, if nothing else were detrimental to their cause, if this would be something that they wouldn't want to touch. Yeah, possibly so. And I wonder if there are like particular denominational traditions that have variation on that question. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting that's an interesting question there. Um, yeah, I rem- yeah, well, that's enough. Family values, that's such a relic of the 90s, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it just if, makes- if you want if you want to know more about women in the workplace, head over to the Christian Feminist podcast. Absolutely. That that's a that's a great segue. Uh, a great uh, pitch over to that great podcast. So, um and finally, um religion. Uh this is this I need some clarification about, frankly, because I feel like all of this counts as religion. Um, so mm-hmm. how can religion be a subset of its own to- of its own form? I like you. I found this difficult to understand, mainly because this is where it got to be movement or organization or denomination specific as to what they wanted. Yes, and so the only common goal that I could find was that they wanted to protect what we'll call conservative Christianity mm-hmm. before all else. Mm-hmm. And then depending on the organization or the movement, often it might be, you know, the correct denomination. Yeah. Um, That makes sense. And you have, um, like, Franklin Graham written down here along with um, Joel Hosteen and Benny Hinn, which I'm sure Franklin Graham is happy that you grouped them together with them. I was was just throwing (laughs) things out. And, you know, I'm from – or I've lived in North Carolina, so the Graham family is huge here as well. And, again, nothing against – the Graham family again, or, you know, Joel Osteen, they all, Osteen, Graham, and Hinn all have their own issues, their own problems we could discuss, and at some, and in some cases, you know, their, their positive aspects as well. Yeah. You know, this is another good time to point out that not everyone we list is a Seven Mountain Dominionist. Yes. Yeah. But, but I think that they're held up as the kind of people that should be followed or should be allowed, especially the Graham family. I'm going to say, um, oh, who was, who was his father? Billy? Billy. Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. Not necessarily, number one, because of their message, but number two, because of the influence they have in business and government. Mm. Yeah, there lots so, of, uh, I mean... So they have lots of political clout. I mean, there are some actually uncomfortable things that Billy Graham is saying on the Nixon tapes um, mm-hmm. uh, about Jews, all right? <laughs> and, so, and so, yeah... Um, I, 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 so I was just recently thinking about the Graham family. The, I was at a conference with Michael Farmer, Christian Humanist podcast, um, at uh, Montreat College, and one of the uh, venues for this conference is the chapel where Billy Graham was married to his wife. Actually, so uh, okay. yeah, they I have that area near Asheville. I guess is where he lives still, and and um, and um, and even our state museum in in Raleigh has a large exhibit dedicated to Billy Graham. Yeah, I mean, and, and so this is, I mean, maybe the premier example of the sort of Christian cult of celebrity, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Billy Graham. 
I mean, everybody's flawed. So if he said bad things on the Nixon tapes, I don't, I don't want to necessarily say that for that proves that he was a phony all the time, right? And so, I yeah. mean, everybody, nobody's perfect, right? And so, I, um, I think that we'll, you know, if we ever record that memorial episode, we'll end up talking about how we deal with flawed individuals. Yes, exactly, right? And but if I, I mean, I feel like, oops, excuse me, I feel like Franklin Graham falls into the pursuit of power camp he falls on he falls on the other side of that line than his father did okay um, even though Billy Graham had great access to those in power I mean he counseled as every president since in his I mean since the 50s I mean has he been I uh, think I, I think you're right I believe or, he actually spoke to Obama even uh, and, and I, I believe they have met and, and so I mean this guy obviously has access to the corridors of institutional secular power right mm-hmm. uh, and he's with great um, acclaim and great respect um franklin graham yeah because maybe he lives in the era of tweeting and facebook memes um seems to be falling more towards the dangers of that relationship with power in my own personal reading of him and and i know very little about any of these men that we're talking about i only know what little i've done on research on this but i would agree with you that billy graham if he became influential, it's because he became influential. Yeah. Like, he didn't start out with that as his goal. But his son, I think that could be there could be that danger. I'm not saying there is or isn't because I personally don't know enough to make an opinion about it. I mean, the but, only thing I know is what I see shared by my more um, – I don't even know what to call – church friends, right? Um, and so, right. Um, and so when I see his – I don't follow his social media accounts, but when I see his um, statements shared, they're always making categorical statements about hot topics, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it seems to me taking this sort of family values theology um, uh, into the, the Twitter sphere where it's kind of perfect for. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, I would say that. And, and you have Benny Hinn written down here. And I, the only thing well, I want to say about that um, is, have you ever seen the video someone took Benny Hinn um, where he like throw, he's like waving his coat at people? Yes. And, and yes. They, they superimpose the lightsaber. On it. Yes. <laughs> I'll put it's a link amazing. to that. I'll put a link to that on the show notes too. Um, yeah, but you you wrote him down for some other reason. Well, I think I wrote down Osteen and Hinn for this idea that there's this idea in the Seven Mountain Dominions that God wants Christians to prosper in the cultural sphere, and I think that their message plays into that. If that makes sense, yes. Where where they're preaching now? Again, I know very little about them. I know what I've seen on TV or what little I've read. But essentially, if I understand correctly, both Osin and Hinn are essentially preaching a prosperity gospel. Uh, they're, I think the poster boys for that, yeah. Which which would play right into the Seven Mountain Dominion because they're preaching this idea of success. Yeah. As its own divine, as its own good, right? right. Um, yes. Um, and I think that that's exactly where they belong. <laughs> I, I feel like that's, uh, that's exactly true. Um, and, and there's, and that's another, I talked about the Christian bookstore culture as well. I mean, those are the people you see in Christian bookstores along okay. with Joyce Meyer and those sorts of things. Right. Um, I, I think when, when we're working on the, on the notes for this, I wrote down books and then I just had a line of question marks because I honestly, you know, I teach in a Christian school and I read all the time, but I honestly don't know what, a, what is in a Christian bookstore mainly because there's not one in my area. Yeah. 
Uh, that's shocking. Um, yeah, no, there. And, well, and we had like when it closed down. Thomas Kincaid, you know, collections and that sort of thing. The, these right. sorts of. Um, I think the last time I was in a a store dedicated to Christian literature, I think that was when, like, um, Frank Peretti was huge and you know the left behind series and that kind of thing exactly yeah the left behind books yeah those are uh definitely a part of that actually i remember when i i used to go in when i was a kid my mom used to sing special music uh mm-hmm. at church and and so she would go in and this is you know relic of you know, day gone by but you would buy these basically karaoke tapes um of of popular contemporary Christian songs to sing to in front of church. So uh, my mom would go in and buy a tape she would work on for her, you know, next singing um, uh, performance. And and so I would go into these things and I would look at the, the the music available. And I never really partook of Christian popular culture. I never really listened to Christian music or read Christian books or anything like that. Um, and so I just remember charts. If you like Green Day, you might like this band. If you like, <laughs> if you like, uh, whoever Nirvana, you might like this band. And, wow! And, and so there were these sorts of um, like sanctified versions, basically of um, of what's secularly pop, um, popular. And, and, and I do feel like those things were well intended, um, and I think that they were um, in a sense they were essentially part of the market culture of that sphere. Um, but I do think that unwittingly they fall into this dominionist. Um, perspective on the world. And, and I think that, you know, Benny Hinn and uh, Joel Osteen play right into that as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's the seven. We've got through all seven here in two episodes. That's not so bad. Um, so if, uh, Jay, so if folks like Joe Carter are right, and this is sort of a made up conspiracy theory, I mean, I think I've, I agree to disagree with that largely, right? Um, mm-hmm. Why is it we should take these kinds of beliefs seriously and even consider them closely? Well, first, I think we should point out that there are certain groups that do say, you know, our our goal is to put Christians in the reins of leadership, in the in the power positions, and have them lead according to our ideals. Mm-hmm. So to say that it's a made-up conspiracy theory – I think there – I don't want to say that it's true or that it's false, but there is some truth to that simply because there are organizations like that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the vast majority of it is many different movements or organizations or maybe even individual churches that might not realize what they're doing that are acting in such a way as to promote the idea. Yeah. And so as Christians, it would behoove us to examine our motives, our ideals, and our goals – you know, is what I am working for, is it biblical? Is Does it match what I'm told to do by Christ mm. and not necessarily by my pastor? Yeah. Um, and, and I guess going back to the <clears throat> excuse me example about the sort of good versus bad version of Christian education, um, one is reflective about its own mm-hmm. practices and one is not. One is too sure. And, and I feel like the sureness of – that underlies this dominionism is really its biggest fault. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't have any kind of self-inquiry. Um, and, right. and for me, I, I've mentioned many times on this podcast and the Christian Humanist podcast, my love of Lionel Trilling and, and his book, The Liberal Imagination, is a collection of essays that are sort of aimed at getting liberals to be less sure of their beliefs um, mm-hmm. and, and, and to use 
art and literature as ways to contemplate why they believe what they believe and ways to perfect yes. that over time, right? Um, and in it, fact, it's very influential when, on me. On day one of my classes, one of the first things that I give my students is a is a poster of Einstein at a blackboard, or whatever, and it says, "I don't expect you to think like me, but I do expect you to think." <laughs> you know, exactly. I I don't expect you know to create. 60 some odd cookie cutter versions of myself my goal is to create 60 people that can take information process it and come to their own idea yeah and know why they think what they think especially in christian education because i know that you know with me teaching in a christians a christian high school i get students that have been in some form of christian education their whole life yes and so it's like well i believe this because it's what i've always believed yeah and so you know, there are times that I've gotten called in by parents, you know, being accused of being or of not being Christian because I keep asking them why. And it's like, well, that's the point <laughs> is to get is to know why they believe what they believe. Yeah. You're a subversive is what you are. So you radical. Um, <laughs> so um, and, and that said, uh, we've been sort of aiming this at a, a, a kind of Christian culture, but very quickly i can think of secular versions of this i think neil degrasse mm-hmm. tyson mm-hmm. is is every bit as stupid as oh yes <laughs> as this you know, you know mindset, his his right? his tweets are taken as fact by yes. by way too many people we could also put stephen hawking in there yeah yeah and, and, and so there are ways in which or, um, who was it was it chris hitchens Oh, Christopher Hitchens and, and Richard Dawkins is, is even worse. Um, oh, oh, yeah. And on that note, there's a great book by Terry Eagleton, um, who's a, a literary critic, um, called Reason, Faith, and Revolution, something Notes on the God Debate, I think it was. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm probably mentioned this before, but he um, basically def- – he's a, he's a Marxist um, literary critic from Britain, Catholic in, in his background, who's defending um, – Christianity, I mean, his version of it, which is not necessarily orthodox, from new atheism. So it's a very interesting, like, rhetorical situation just in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. But he actually conflates uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens into a single figure that he derides, derides called um, Ditchkins. <laughs> That's what he, oh calls, he calls them. And so it's a very funny little uh uh, book. I actually had my students write book reviews of of this last semester, and it was actually kind of interesting to see what they thought of it. But um, um, anyway, so this exists everywhere. I mean, this is just a way of being doctrinaire, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, um, about what you think. And, and so, uh, with the idea of this episode particularly was to see a way that this doctrinaire thinking is kind of manifests itself in. A variety of Christian culture. And, and so right. I think that um, for that reason, I don't really have any regrets about what we did here. But I don't also limit it to a flaw in Christianity. I mean, this is a right. flaw I, in just limited thinking. And it, Right. I was going to say it has the possibility of being a flaw in anyone's ideology. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, um, I like to kind of end with recommendations. What are some sources that listeners can sort of look at and if they want to learn more about this subject? Well, we, I know we've mentioned him before, but John Fea yeah, yes. has written extensively about dominionism in in particular, um, especially as Ted Cruz was was in the um, presidential race. Yeah. You know, he wrote he wrote several articles about that, both on his personal blog and on um, 
oh, I think it was Christianity Today, mm, okay. was the other era or the other area where he, excuse me, where he discussed that idea. Again, most of the research that I found, I had to go to many different denominational websites or many different movements or organizations. It wasn't like, oh, here's this, you know, national organization of Seven Mountain Dominionists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's no there's no super PAC for those people, right? Um, right. Yeah. Um, Not yet, anyway. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Cruz because I mean, his father. I mean, Faya makes a really good argument. Can legitimately be called that, right? Ted Cruz's mm-hmm. father. Um, and back to Trump. One of my favorite moments of this election cycle was Trump um, suggesting that Ted Cruz's father also um, was involved in the John F. Kennedy assassination. <laughs> So. Oh yeah, I just I just re-listened to that interview, and it sounded even more absurd than the first time I heard it. So yeah, I, I just like that there's a nice common thread between a lot of our episodes here. So we got Thea. So in terms of actual dominionism, he's one that I would point to. But then, since our overall theme or idea is to challenge how we think, um, I would direct our listeners back to uh, Chris Gertz's personal blog where he writes about um, teaching and history because he's written some excellent articles about what it means to teach history but I think that it could be applied to basically how we live our Christian lives as well. Yeah, well and he also, on the Pietist Schoolman um, Mm -hmm. is the name of his blog and and he has also a podcast in our network, um, the the Pietist Schoolman podcast. Um, And and you can now find him at um, Pathios writing every writing every Tuesday on the anxious bench. I'd forgotten about that. That's actually true. He's replacing. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, but he also recently, along with Faya, um, had a really interesting conversation in writing about, um, Christian education. And, and mm-hmm. that I think has a lot of intersections into particularly that, that section of this conversation. So, um, yeah, that's great. Well, um, Jay, Again, this was awesome. Thank you for uh, sitting here with me for two or three hours today talking through all this stuff. Um, it's, it's always a lot of fun. I really appreciate your insight. Um, you always teach me something, and I, I appreciate that. Um, we have, if those of you who are listening, uh, Jay and I have some plans to record a few um, episodes this summer, so you'll be hearing him on this show um, periodically over the next few months. And so uh, um, I hope you enjoy him as much as I do. Um, oh, I keep meaning, I meant to do this at the um, the Barton episode. You have a blog about running, right? Well, Kind of, sort of, running is one of the things that I, is one of the many things that I find interesting, and really it's just a good way to unwind and relax, and it's where I get a lot of, or it's where I meditate, I guess I'll call it meditate, it's where I mull things over and things like that. So if you're interested in non-academic me, that is runninginmyhead.com. Runninginmyhead.com, and I'll put, yep. that in the, I'll put that in the show notes too. And like I said, I, it's kind of where I go to not be academic. So once in a while, I'll post something political or something about that. But anyway, I have to have some place where that doesn't intersect. <laughs> we need space. That's for sure. So Yes. Well, Jay, thanks a lot. Um, thank you all for listening and uh, tune in next time. Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, the trepid press liaison. 
Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye.